If you would, uh, turn with me today to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be finishing up Ephesians chapter 2 today, so we'll be looking at verses 19 through 22, uh, but turn actually to verse 11, uh, because we'll read this whole kind of section again to, to get an understanding of the context of what Paul is writing. But as you get there, you know, consider who are the members of your household. Who are the members of your household? For most of us, the answer might be quite easy, and we might just say, well, it's our immediate family. It's the people who, who we live with. Those are the members of our household. But it's possible that family, for us, is a bit broader than that term. Uh, it's broader than just the people we mark out by those who are related to us by blood or marriage. Family can extend to close friends, and those who are the members of our household may be even uh, friends, people who are we, not, we are not related to by blood or marriage. Uh, we might count someone else's home, our home, even if it's not the place we sleep in every night. Or perhaps there is someone we might consider part of our home, our, our household, even though they don't reside with us. And that kind of no matter where they are, no matter what's happening, they're family and we'll be there for them in that way. As we continue in the book of Ephesians, we come across this idea of household, and that'll be one of the metaphors we consider today in our passage. Uh, Paul concludes these arguments that he's been making about the Gentiles considering. Uh, if we go back up to verse 11, as we'll read in just a moment here, we'll see he says, remember, remember who you were Gentiles. You were Gentiles. Uh, you weren't of the people of Israel. And so we're going to be kind of concluding those arguments and seeing what Paul draws us to consider. And today I want us to see that Christians are part of God's household by the Spirit of God, and they're founded upon Christ and His authority. So in our passage today, I want us to see that Christians are part of God's household by the Spirit of God and founded upon Christ and His authority. So let us read Ephesians chapter 2, from Ephesians chapter 2. And again, we'll start in verse 11 and go down through the end of the passage. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is the word of the Lord, and I pray that you receive it as such. So, again, remember chapter 2 is, is designed as one of contrast. We have kind of these two major sections contrasting uh, who the Ephesians once were outside of God's work in Christ through the Spirit in them, and who they now are because of Christ's work applied to them by the Spirit. Right in the very beginning of the passage, it's this one of you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but now you are alive in Christ by God's grace. And in these last verses, the, this passage, we see that Paul's been prodding the Ephesians to consider 
who they were before they came to Christ in context of their relation to the people of Israel, right? The, and that identifier of Gentile only makes sense in the context of the people of Israel. In other words, they wouldn't call themselves Gentiles. The Ephesians wouldn't say, hey, look at me, I'm a Gentile. Uh, they would just say, hey, look at me, I'm an Ephesian, right? But as Christ's work is applied to them, they have to understand that their salvation has a context situated in the people of Israel. And again, who were the people of Israel? Well, they were God's chosen people. Uh, they were the one nation that God had chosen to carry his name and to be the recipients of the covenant promises he made in time past, and then he made directly with them in, in and through right the law of Moses. And that identity of Jewishness is not inconsequential. It means it doesn't, it's not as though it doesn't matter. It does matter. They were the heirs of the promises. Uh, to them was the glory, right? They saw the glory of God. Uh, for instance, on Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, when God descended, they saw the glory of God there in the tabernacle. Uh, I've been reading through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the books of Moses, and the God's glory descends on the tabernacle. And even when they get into the temple and Solomon builds the temple, right? God's glory descends on the temple. They see the glory of God. Uh, they're the ones who did that. Not everybody got that uh, experience. Not everybody was allowed to see something of God's glory. And to them, according to the flesh, came the Messiah. Right? The, Jesus is Jewish. Uh, and we have to recognize that. And Paul's writing here says that, uh, as he's writing here, he says that Christ has done something in you. He has changed you Gentiles so that there is no longer hostility. There is no longer a dividing wall. There is no longer these uh, ordinances that separate you from God's people, but rather you are made one. There's real union between those who are God's people and those who were not God's people, but now are made God's people by and through the work of Christ. And so as we go along today, we're going to see some kind of summarizing metaphors that Paul uses uh, to consider. He uses some imagery here in our passage uh, to summarize and build upon what he's been writing about. So let's turn to that first image and we'll see in verse 19, a saintly home, a saintly home. So Paul writes, and he, he writes here, right? So then, or uh, depending on your translation, might say, now therefore. And all that to say, what does this language mean? It's a summarizing language. Because of these things that have come before, because of what I've just written, so then, consider what that means. Uh, and if you notice, I bring that up kind of often in Paul's writings because Paul uses that language a lot. Paul often has a very logical structure to his writing. He's, he writes something and he says, okay, because that is true, here's what I want you to know. And I raise that for you so that way when you're reading the Bible yourself in your personal study time, pay attention to those things. Because realize that what the, the author of the scripture, what God himself is trying to get you to understand is because of those things being true, this now has some implication on you and your life. Uh, so just realize that that's, that's, what he, that's what we're doing here, right? Paul's arriving at the purpose of his writing. So then what? Well, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And remember, this is reminiscent of what he wrote earlier in this passage, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Right? So, so he's calling back to that language. Uh, and Paul's style in this letter is one of uh, using synonyms, so using closely related words, uh, and we're not probably to draw a great distinction here between these two words. They are two different words in the Greek, but we're not probably not supposed to like 
particularly part it, parse it out and say, okay, well, what's this word mean? And that's that part. And what's this word mean? And that's that part. And let's join them together. And it's just, he's using kind of this all encompassing language. It's kind of how we see it in the, uh, the Hebrew poetry. Like read through the, the book of Psalms, right? And as you read through the Psalms, there's often, there's one line and then the next line says kind of the same exact thing, but in a slightly different way. Uh, so it's kind of this poetic way of just saying all encompassing. And so what were they? What were the Gentiles? Strangers and aliens. Uh, foreigners. Or we might say non-citizens. And again, in relation to whom? Who were they strangers from? Who were they alien in, aliens of? Israel. Right? The context is Israel. Gentiles are outside of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. But now Paul writes, right? He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outside the people of Israel. You're no longer outside God's chosen people. You might say it as the children's song says it. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And how could I be one of them and you could be too? It's only because of Christ's reconciling work. So because of the blood of Christ, you then are no longer strangers and aliens. And I almost joined those two together and called them Australians. Not to be confused with Australians, although they might be strangers to us too. Um, all right, so you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints. And notice who it is that Paul says we're citizens with. He doesn't here say citizens with the people or with the nation of Israel. He says citizens with the saints. And I think that's for a very specific purpose. I think what he's trying to point here is that our nationality doesn't become Israelite. It becomes holy one. Again, remember, that's what that word saint means. It means holy one. The point is, is that we are not making a second version of the earthly nation of Israel. We are making and being made into a holy people. And this is, of course, what God had called his people, Israel, from the very beginning. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verses 6 through 8, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, God had called his people to what end? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, had got, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right? So, so right at the very beginning there, what is, what is Moses Declare on behalf of God to the people of Israel, you are a holy people. This was the purpose of God for his chosen people. But what do we know about the nation of Israel? They weren't a holy people. Right? They weren't God's alone. Now, granted, they had times starts and stops of that they had moments of that they had wanderings uh they had fits um there were pockets of holiness we might say in the history of the people of israel but by and large what we know of them is that they are one of a sliding away from god not a running towards god you look at the book of judges for instance and it's a spiral and it's a downward spiral uh Look at, track that through, and, and I would encourage you, if you've never done this, go do this. Go read through the book of Judges 
and track the quality of the character of the book of, of the actual judges that are judging the nation of Israel. You start out and they seem like pretty decent folk. But as you get further and further into the book, the character of the judges is more and more suspect. Such that you get Gideon, who not only questions the Lord and God has mercy upon him, but he then sets up a idol for the people to worship. And then, of course, we end with Samson, who should of all, all people, right, have known the glory of the Lord and served him in the strength of that glory. And yet, what do you see him doing? Uh, he's sexually immoral. He's unfaithful to God. And he eventually pays for it with his life. So the book of Judges isn't an optimistic book, if you will. And then you get into the prophets and you're not much better. And then you get into the kings and you're not much better. And then the nation dissolves, right? That it breaks apart and eventually is carried off into captivity. But all that to say they were supposed to be a people who distinguished themselves from the other nations around them. But their kind of mindset has always been one of becoming like the nations around them. I mean, even look at that uh, from what they told the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. Look at what they told Samuel, why they wanted a king. Listen to this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And again, here's the thing. They did become like all the other nations. The people who are supposed to be holy, separate, distinct, set apart are common, profane just like everyone else. And yet, even in the midst of this, right, God makes a promise to his people that he would indeed have a people who were holy. Right? What's the new covenant promise that we get in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God promises that he will make for himself a holy people. Right? That... that he will write his law upon their hearts and he will forgive their iniquity and transgression and sin that he will be gracious and merciful unto them. He will sanctify them. Right? So this first picture that Paul gives us is this is what Christ has done, right? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones. You've been brought in. And the second image, look at this, is and members of the household of God. You, believer, become part of God's household, of God's home. And we might consider it this way, right? That the Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the people of God. Because if the Gentiles under the old law, right, as they were brought into 
even if they were in the land of Israel, they were second-class citizens. Even if they were kind of part of that, even if they became what we call a proselyte, right, where they, they converted to Judaism and they followed the laws of Judaism. We look at that in the temple structure. There was the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place they could go. They couldn't go in further into the temple. They were still separated. There was a dividing wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And God says, no longer. Gentiles, you're not second-class citizens. And when you leave your Gentileness behind, you don't become identityless. If you come to Christ, it's not as though you're lost out in the wilderness standing between two peoples, the Gentiles on one side and the Jews on the other side. No, you're brought in. What does God do? What does God do for those of us who trust in Christ? What does he make us? Romans 8, 15 through 17. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God adopts us into his household. So we're not homeless. What do we have instead? Mansions, right? Christ goes to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, won't he return to take us to that place so that where he is, we may be with him always? We're not penniless, but we are heirs to the treasuries of God. If the beasts of the earths are gods and the cattle on thousands of hills he owns, what will our portion be in Christ? Brothers and sisters, marvel at this. Because you may not have a home here on this earth. You may feel that no one understands you. You may feel that your earthly family is not your family. But you do have a home and you are part of God's household. And he doesn't treat you as a slave, right? Romans 8 tells us that we don't have a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But instead, what do we have? A spirit of adoption that causes us to cry out to God as what? Not master, though he is our master. Not Lord, though he is our Lord. What does it cause us to cry out? Abba, Father. That word Abba is sometimes people take that too far and say it's like it's this really cheesy daddy thing. Uh, it, it doesn't quite mean that, but it is more affectionate. It's not a cold, distant word. When we cry out to God, the spirit of adoption that that causes us to cry out to God is not to call out to him as this cold, distant father figure. It's to call out to him who loves us. And knowing that he loves us. And knowing that when we call out to him, he will answer. And it bears repeating here, because people often say it, that we're all children of God. That's not true. It's not what the scripture says. We are not all children of God. We are all God's creatures. We are all God's creation. But only those who have been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, covered by the blood of Christ, adopted into his family, are the children of God. And if you are in Christ today, this is your identity. You are members of the household of God. Even if you have no earthly family, you're members of the household of God. And even if you do have an earthly family, you are members of the household of God. So two metaphors thus far. Uh, Let's look at the next one. A strong building. A strong building in verse 20. So Paul shifts from this idea of citizenship to this idea of household membership now to a building. And a building is a common metaphor in the ancient world. We know Paul uses this elsewhere. He uses it in Colossians 2.7. He references it. And also in 1 Corinthians 3.10-11, through 11, 
which is probably the more notable example, and we'll look at part of that here in a little bit. But we have some interpretive issues here that we come to because it says here, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the Paul writes to the Ephesians that they were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we might ask first, who were the apostles? Uh, the word apostle simply means to, to say sent one. I've used this example before, but if I uh, send you to Walmart to go buy something, you could say you're my apostle because you've been sent by me. Uh, by the way, I wouldn't say that that's a really great thing to go broadcasting, right? Who cares? Uh, but who are the apostles, right? They're, they're the sent ones. But in the New Testament, right, there's often a very specific class of people we call the apostles, right? And who are the apostles? So when we're talking about here, who is Paul writing about here? We're talking about the 12 disciples, less Judas, plus Matthias, and that's from Acts 126, plus the one that's untimely born, Paul. And we see his designation as that in 1 Corinthians 15, him calling himself that one untimely born. And what ought to be clear here is that the apostles in the church are authoritative in a unique way that other teachers and preachers in the early church were not. Right? So apostle is a very specific designation that Paul is using to say they have a, they had a unique authority to teach that is foundational to our understanding in the church today. Um, but what is their authority? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But next we ought to consider who are the prophets here. So Paul says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So who are these prophets? And probably in our context, the first kind of thing that would pop up in our mind is that we would consider them to be the Old Testament prophets. Right? We would say that these are the people... Uh, who prophesied about Christ's coming. And they were foundational, certainly, uh, to our understanding of who Christ is, who the Messiah is. Uh, they preached about the Messiah. Remember that the early church does not have a New Testament. They just have a testament. It's the old, you know, it's the Hebrew Bible. That's, what, that's all they would have. Um, they would only have what we call the Old Testament uh, because the New Testament was still being written. They would have had these letters from the apostles. And we understand that there is even at that early juncture, uh, we get this from the book of, uh, from Peter's letter, that there is consideration that what the apostles are writing are authoritative in the way that scripture is authoritative. Right? They don't have a collection of these books like we do today. Uh, that would come later. But they had uh, the prophets and the writings in the Old Testament. Uh, but it doesn't seem here that Paul's referring to the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, the first thing is, it is probably unlikely that Paul, uh, if he were talking about the Old Testament prophets, that he would put the apostles before the prophets. So it's unlikely. Uh, but the greater argument against that we find actually in the next chapter in verse 5, in which Paul uses the same kind of phrase. Uh, look at that in Ephesians 3, 5. He writes, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there it's clear that he's not talking about the Old Testament prophets. So I would argue that he's, he's using that same language here. So he's not talking about Old Testament prophets here. He's talking about New Testament prophets. Uh, and indeed, we know that one of the gifts that God gives to his people are prophets. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, we could run far afield of the truth and slide into all kinds of heresies by considering uh, this issue of prophets 
and we won't have the time to deal with every question we might have, but I think there are some significant questions that we should deal with. And of course, as always, if you have further questions about this, uh, I would encourage you to come talk with me afterwards. So the first question we'll deal with is, are there apostles today? Because there are some uh, in church life in America that call themselves apostles and that say that they have the authority that the apostles had when we talk about uh, something like the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John or even the Apostle Paul. So are there apostles today? No, period. That's it. No, period. The scripture is clear about the qualifications of what makes an apostle. Okay? So we go to Acts chapter 1. I encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 1. So you know that this isn't the Dale poorly paraphrased version, but you know this to be the word of God. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Acts 1, 21 and 22. So the context here, the disciples, the early believers, the apostles, they've gathered together and they determine that they need to replace uh, the, the seat that was vacated by Judas. Um, so Acts 1, 21 through 22. So one of the men, this is the, this is the qualifications. So one of the men, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And to that end, they find two in their midst that meet that qualification, uh, Matthias and Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. So those two. Uh, and they choose by lot. Uh, Matthias. So they understand by the Spirit that Matthias is the one to replace Judas's place. Now, again, we have to deal with how is the Apostle Paul an apostle? Because from what we understand, he didn't meet those qualifications. And again, I would turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We won't actually turn there, but I would encourage you to turn there. Uh, you know, write this down, look at this later. Paul calls himself, describes himself as one untimely born. Uh, and I would argue that that is his identification that he is kind of outside of the normal course and order of things when it comes to being an apostle. But we do know that Paul heard and saw the risen Lord Jesus uh, on that Damascus Road experience, right? We again read of in the book of Acts that uh, that that kind of qualifies him for that. In First Corinthians 15, right, he talks about those who saw the risen Lord Jesus, and he accounts himself as one of those, as one untimely born. So, um, are there apostles today? No, the apostles were very uh, specifically qualified to that office. Are there pro prophets today? Are there prophets today? Well, we can say not in the foundational way that, if, that Paul is writing in the book of Ephesians, not in this foundational way of, of talking about those who uh, are able to foretell the future accurately. Right? So not in the same way. The word of God is complete. And we would well heed the warning at the end of the book of Revelation that says, uh, cursed be anyone who takes away or adds anything to this prophecy. So I think we would, well, heed that warning. Now, this to say, are there those in the New Testament that are called prophets in the church? Yes, absolutely. Um, one that immediately jumps to, mind, to my mind as I was studying this was Agabus. And we see that in Acts 21, verse 10. And in that, Paul... Uh, Paul is told by Agabus, who is identified as a prophet, that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to be bound. So he's going to be captured and imprisoned in Jerusalem. And actually, just before Agabus, uh, we have this description of Philip the Evangelist with his four unmarried daughters who are 
prophetesses, right? Female prophets. <coughs> so, in the New Testament, we certainly see there are prophets. Now, are, those, are there those today given the Spirit to make prophetic predictions about specific events in the future? I know that's a long question, so I'm going to read it again just to make sure we understand what I'm asking, right? Are there those today given the Spirit to make prophetic predictions about specific events in the future? Well, we can say this. There are certainly those who claim such a ministry. There are those who argue that that's what they do. But the bar for, for the accuracy of their predictions is perfect. In other words, if they are claiming to speak by the Spirit, they cannot speak in error. They cannot. The Scripture is clear. God does not tell lies, right? In other words, those who often claim for themselves in our day are often not accurate. They make predictions that don't come true. And these are false prophets, right? False prophets. And we cannot deal with false prophets the way that they did in the Old Testament. How did they deal with false prophets in the Old Testament? You were killed, right? You were stoned to death. And so I want to be very clear about this. There are many false prophets today. There are many false teachers today. The scriptures warn us about such people that we should flee from their teachings. Who you listen to matters. There are many who claim to speak by the Spirit of God, but they're really speaking by another spirit. Uh, they utter lies, and a lying spirit is in their mouth to devour and consume those who listen. So be watchful about those who claim to speak on behalf of God and check their words with the Scripture. And perhaps we would not feel the need to listen to such men if we spent more time in the scripture. But it's easier to listen to someone who wants to tell us what we want to hear than it is to go to the word and hear what we don't want to hear, right? But if we ask this question of prophets in another way, so again, I want to be very clear about this, are there those in the church today who speak authoritatively from the scriptures applying it in ways that are relevant for today. Are there those in the church today who speak authoritatively from the scriptures, applying it in ways that are relevant for today? And the answer to that should be yes, absolutely they are. Uh, this is what a preacher should strive for, but I wouldn't say that all preachers are prophets. Okay, so there are those who by the spirit of God speak incisively and powerfully maybe in ways that they don't even know that they are doing. And we could hear uh, and maybe tell stories among one another of the way that a preacher or a teacher has gotten up and, and shared from God's word in such a way that spoke exactly to our situation, even though they knew nothing about our situation, even though that we just happened to show up on that one day because we've not been for a while and we just were there on that one day and we've been dealing with this issue and God spoke to it. Um. So the apostles are unique. The apostles were unique. And the prophets that Paul is referring to here were unique in the, in the history of the church. Now, I will say, I do believe that the gift of prophecy still exists today. I don't believe it ceased. And you may disagree with me on that, and that's okay. But either way, we need to be very clear and careful as we come to this issue. I, I, you know, I don't want to throw out this uh, gift of the Spirit just because there are many bad examples in our day. But again, we have to be wary. We do have to be wary and, and not believe everything that someone says to us. Just because someone comes up to us and says, I've got a word from the Lord, doesn't mean they have a word from the Lord. And by the way, I've actually literally had people come up to me and say, I have a word from the Lord for you. So understand that this people do say that kind of stuff. It may be strange to us because we may never have been in a context where we hear that kind of stuff, but it does happen. We need to know it's happening in so-called churches around our, our community, in our community, and in our country, right? 
And here's something essential to this discussion. By what authority did these apostles and prophets teach and preach? It's God's. Right? The authority of the, both the apostles and the prophets is Christ Jesus. Their authority is dependent upon the authority of Christ. They have no authority if Christ is not their authority. Right? We can consider what Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. By the way, there's something in there for our consideration of the Mormons who the founder of that church says that, is, that an angel came to him and gave him uh, identification of special tablets that had God's word on it. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Why don't we trust the Book of Mormon as God's word? Because it's not the gospel. It's not the, the word of God, the faith once for all given. Paul can speak so strongly about the gospel that they first preached to the Galatians because the gospel was based in and solely on the authority of Christ. If it is God's word, it is true. And if it contradicts God's word then it's false, right? That's a simple equation for us. And if it's a false gospel, Paul says that man who preaches it should be accursed, should be cursed, should be thrown into hell forever. And notice how strongly he says that. He says, even if we come to you and we go back and say, this isn't the truth, this is the truth. Let us be accursed. And we come back to our passage, and this is so fundamental for us, right? That built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, and the Greek there is, liter is that literal, it is that em emphatic, Christ Jesus himself. He, Christ Jesus, being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. Now, we may have a question here about 1 Corinthians 3.11. Because in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we have this statement by Paul that Jesus Christ is the foundation, and he alone is the foundation. We sang earlier, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. So how do we reconcile what is said there with what is said here? Well, we have to understand that there is no contradiction here, that Paul is dealing with different subjects, and though he uses a similar metaphor, it's not the exact same. Right? Indeed, he labors here to say in verse 20 that Christ Jesus is foundational to the foundation of the building of believers. Right? He's the cornerstone. Jesus is the brick that is laid from which all the others are oriented. And if the cornerstone is missing, the building will be off kilter and crumble and fall. Significantly, Paul's point is that the apostles and prophets teach Jesus. Their doctrine is about Jesus. Their purpose is Christ's purpose. So we could argue, is Christ the foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Because what are the apostles and prophets teaching and preaching? Christ. They're not laying anything else. They're not talking about anything else. They're not adding on to anything else. They're talking about Jesus. Christ. Who sent the apostles? Jesus. For instance, even, whom do the prophets reveal? You have the apostle John 
on the island of Patmos having a prophetic revelation. And what does he write about? Jesus, right? Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. You see the point? And to go back to this discussion of so-called modern-day prophets, and if you take, a, take notice of the contours of their ministry, you look to see what is it about. Notice why they prophesy. What's their point? Jesus is incidental. Jesus is just the vehicle to get them to what they really want, which apparently these days is a new jet stream plane. It's a popular thing. Right? It's normally these so-called modern day prophets are all about themselves and their fame. They want to be known. They want attention. They want a following. They want Facebook likes, Instagram hearts, uh, whatever else you want to give out. TikTok subscribers. They want a following because it's about them. It's not about Jesus. And may that be a warning for us all, by the way. What are we trying to build our Redeeming Grace Fellowship? Is this church an ego trip for me? By the way, that's one of the things that marks out a cult. It's about the leader, not about the doctrine. Is this about Jack? Is it about some elder in the future that may join us? Is this church about you and your ideas about how a church should run? Perish the thought. Or as the book of Romans, that refrain in the book of Romans, right? May it never be. By no means may it ever be. And I don't just say that. And I would genuinely ask for your prayer in that. Because pride is a beast at the best of times. And how easy it is for us to turn inward and think that what matters most is me. Praise God for the humility of John the Baptist who cried out, he must increase and I must decrease. May that be our cry today. May we make much of Jesus. May we give God the glory due his name. May we be built upon the foundation of Christ Jesus. May we study the word that he has given unto us, his people, through the apostles, and the prophets. And may we never take our gaze off of him. So we have this. We, we have a, a building. And now let's look at this last metaphor of a holy temple in verses 21 and 22. A holy temple. We shift slightly from the idea of a building to a specific kind of building, a temple. And again, it opens up verse 21, in whom? And again, we ask, in whom? Who are we talking about? Jesus, in Christ, not the apostles and prophets, not the saints, not the members of God's household, in Jesus, in Christ, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is our cornerstone, and he is also the mortar that holds us together. This is what Paul has been writing about all along, right? That Jesus changes everything. He changes our relationship with God. He reconciles us to God, and he also reconciles us to one another. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord, you are being joined together with other believers for a purpose. You are being shaped and joined together to be a holy temple. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. By the way, that's a warning for false prophets, isn't that? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God's temple is holy. 
God is creating for himself a holy people. He's building a holy temple. You are a holy temple if you are in the Lord. And what is it to be holy? It is to be set apart, distinct, morally virtuous, pure. It is to be as God is. For God is holy, holy, holy. Do you live as though you are a holy temple unto the Lord? It is not uncommon for those in our culture, even within the church, to profess to be in Christ and to live as though they have not been changed by the power of God, the blood of Christ, the washing of the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you will live differently. You will be changed. Your mind will be renewed, knowing the will of God. You, how can you speak? And how you speak will be different. Uh, you will not speak as the world speaks. Your mouth will not pour forth springs of fresh water and bitter water. By the way, that comes from James 3. Go read James 3. How you speak matters, Christian. We might consider 1 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if you profess Christ as your Savior, then live like the holy priest you are. Offer an acceptable spiritual sacrifice. Be built upon and joined together into a holy temple. And notice too here in verse 21, back in Ephesians 2, right? In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. What's my point in emphasizing that? Because the church is not finished yet. It is growing. It's not perfect yet. We are made complete in Christ, but there's still work to be done. It is as some describes the work of God in us, right? You may have heard this phrase before, already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it is not yet here in a sense. And so too we might say of this, this reality, we're a holy temple unto the Lord, but not complete yet. Verse 22, in him or in whom, again, who are we talking about? Christ Jesus. We have this great statement of the work of the Trinity. Look at this in verse 22. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit or through the Spirit. There's lots of things to note here. Uh, first, we might note, in verse 22, in him you also. One commentator puts that phrase this way, that what has been before abstract for the Ephesians, Paul makes concrete. It's not that this is just some amorphous thing out here true for believers in Christ. Ephesians, this is true for you. And you might say, readers of this letter, this is true for you. Today, if you are in Christ, this is true for you and him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, then your telos, your goal, your end is to be a dwelling place for God. Now, we might ask, what's the point of a temple? It's a place of worship. It's also a place for God to dwell. Right? We look at the, the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem. That's what it was there for, right? We look at the tabernacle. That's what it was there for. It's a place for God to dwell. But let's also bear in mind that God does not need a place to dwell. Acts 7, 47 through 50. Acts 7, 47 through 50. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, that is God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right, one thing that separates our God, the living God, from the gods of this world is they, the gods of this world need temples. They need places to dwell. Because if they're left out to the elements, what happens to them? They corrode, they fall apart, they break down. They might be like Dagon in the temple before the Ark of the Covenant when it falls down and its hands shatter and its head falls off. God is not like that. Our God is the living God. He made all things. He doesn't need a dwelling place. And yet, this is, this is remarkable, right? And yet he chooses a people for himself. And in those people, he places his spirit. He builds them up in Christ for the purpose of being the place of his glory shining forth. Remember the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17, 23. Jesus prays this for you, believer. I in them, in you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Oh, the purpose of God to save a wicked people from their rebellion and reconcile them to himself as evidence of his love for such pitiable creatures. Christians are part of God's household by the Spirit of God and founded upon Christ and his authority. What wonders God has planned for his people. But friend, if you trust not in Christ, if you don't believe in him, if you don't build your life upon him and his teaching, there is no good for you. There is, n there is nothing good. You who are outside of the blessings of God, if you don't have God, if you don't believe in him, you are not a fellow citizen with the saints. You're not a part of God's household or being built up into a place for him to dwell. You are instead destined for eternal damnation. Heaven is real and so is hell. And in hell there is nothing for you but the divine wrath of God for all the evil that you think and say and do. And you may protest and say, well, those are little evils. Those aren't that big deals. You only think that because you do not understand the holiness of God. You do not understand how utterly at war you are with God. And understand the war is not God towards you. It is you towards God. You're the, the starter of that war. You don't understand the fullness of your hatred towards God. The sins that you commit and the good that you fail to do co condemn you before a holy God. But Christ, Christ Jesus came and in his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection and ascension created a means of reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man. And it is only in Christ that we can have peace with God. It is only by being built upon the cornerstone that we can stand. And so, friend, look to Jesus. Call to him. Plead with him and ask him for grace and mercy. Ask him to save you from your sins. Because the heart of Christ is gentle and lowly. He will not cast out those who come to him in genuine faith and repentance. Trust in the Lord Jesus this day. Believe in him. Be saved. And then, and this is glorious, what glorious work God does, not only does he save you, not only does he forgive your sins, but he also purposes such glory and good for you. He works in you for his glory and your good. Your end, believer, is relationship with God, unity with his people, and living in the light of his glory for all eternity. There is now and there is coming a day when you will fully understand the meaning of that name of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Sin separates us from God, but Christ reconciles us to him. The blood of Christ covers all our sin. And so when God sees us, believers, Brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved of God, when God sees us, he doesn't see 
sinful wretches making a mess of his creation. But in Christ, he sees a holy temple, a place fit for him to dwell. The Spirit of God indwells you, brothers and sisters in Christ, if indeed you are in God. The Father purposed your salvation. Christ affected it, and the Spirit applies it. The Trinity is at work to save you. One implication of this, by the way, is that we are made members of the household of God. And so no matter the state of our earthly families, we have a heavenly home. You may be the only one in your family to believe in Christ, and that can cause strife. It can cause moments of hardship. It may make you feel alone. And I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in lands far away from our own. I think of those who name the name of Christ. When they name Jesus as their Savior, they will be cast out of their families, of their homes, of their towns. I think of those who will lose their life in the coming minutes and hours and days because they believe in Jesus, not for any other reason, not because they have an illness that is terminal, not because they have committed a crime that is deserving the punishment of death, only because they dare to believe in Jesus. That is what their capital crime is. And I think of them and I think of those that bear stripes, the pains, the beatings, and the imprisonments, and feel loneliness because they dare trust in Christ. They have a home. They have a family of believers. They are part of God's household. Though they may enter into the gates of heaven with much pain and humiliation, they but walk the path of their Savior before them. God, give them grace and keep them blameless unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And may we too here bear this in mind. We don't hope for a home in this world. We long for that better world, the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sin, sorrow, or sickness. And God give us grace to make it to that day, that we, in our every way, may be ever Christward. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Father, forgive us. uh, Forgive us of our sins. Father, forgive us for being so consumed with this world that we forget that we live for another. Father, forgive us for joining ourselves to sin, though we are to be a holy priesthood. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have failed you this week, this day. And God, give grace for the days ahead in which we will find what is written in your word true, that when we want to go and do good, evil lies close at hand. You know, we call out, as with your Apostle Paul, what a wretched man that I am. But thanks be to you, O God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, Father God, we pray that we would bear in mind this, your word this morning. Father, that we would consider who it is that you are making us into be. Father, that we would consider that we are not first citizens of the United States of America. We are first citizens with the holy saints. That our home is not the place where we lie our heads down at night. Our home is in heaven. Father, we pray that our hearts may beat with boldness for the cause of Christ. Father, that our, our, our minds, our, our, our selves, our souls may desire the word which is the foundation of Oh, God, help us. God, create within us that which is of you. 
Father, we pray for those in our midst, those that we know, those in this community around us that are dying and dead in their sins. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them, that you would give boldness unto us to speak unto them the words of reconciliation. For, Father, we know this world needs reconciliation. They need to be reconciled unto you. Father, we have family members, loved ones, sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. Father, we have many who are at war with you. And we long, Lord God, and oh, may it be our heart's longing that we would see them reconciled unto you. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are even now suffering for naming Jesus. Father, give them grace. Bear them up. Give them strength. Be their shield and their portion. Lord, we pray that we who are in Christ would give you glory, would worship and praise you, would sing out in love for you. Oh, Father, be praised in us, your people. Be pleased to dwell in us. We pray. In the name of your beloved and only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, He who is Emmanuel, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.